So Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and block out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from the presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I would teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I will bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I, uh, I hate this feeling. Uh, my ears are burning. My face feels red. I wish the earth would open up and swallow me whole. I want to argue, to shout back, to say that I am innocent. Uh, but there is no point because I know that I've done the wrong thing and I'm ashamed. Ashamed for what I've done, ashamed for being caught, ashamed that I've kept it hidden for so long. I thought I could get away with it, that nobody would know, that nobody would get hurt. But it's happened and now it's all out in the open. What do you do? What do you do when you have been found out? When something you've been keeping secret is forced into the harsh light of truth. When you thought you could get away with it, but somehow someone has found out your little secret. You see, it all started one evening. It was springtime, a time like now. A beautiful time of year as the days begin to grow longer and the frost of winter departs. The evenings are warmer and they allow you to enjoy the clear night sky. And it was a night just like this that David couldn't sleep. He got up from bed and he walked around. He went outside and onto the roof of his palace and he surveyed his city, Jerusalem. His armies were off at war. They had destroyed the Ammonites and they were currently laying siege to another city. And David sees a woman, a beautiful woman, bathing. And instead of turning away, David sends his servants to find out who she is. Her name, Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah, one of the soldiers in his army. David sends for her and she comes to the palace. 
They spend the night together and then she goes home. Time passes and David thinks, well, that's that. It was a fling, a one-night stand. Nobody knows. Nobody gets hurt. And then a messenger with a message. It simply says, I'm pregnant, signed B. David tries to remain calm. That's okay. I'll summon Uriah to come home from the battlefield. He will sleep with his wife. No one will know. No one will get hurt. But Uriah is more honorable than David. He sleeps on the steps of the palace rather than go home. He won't enjoy the comfort of his own bed whilst his fellow soldiers are out there fighting. This isn't supposed to happen. It's not supposed to work out this way. David acts quickly. He sends a letter to Uriah's commander. Uriah will be put in the front line of the battle where the fighting was fiercest. Then his fellow soldiers would suddenly pull back, leaving him to die by the sword. Uriah, the faithful soldier who would not even go home to his own bed, would be betrayed by his own king. And soon after, David took Bathsheba to be his wife. Nobody will know. Nobody will get hurt. Uriah didn't know, but he died because of this one-night stand. Bathsheba knew, and she lost her husband. David knew, and he betrayed one of his own soldiers, then stole his widow. But no one else will know. Nobody else will get caught. Sure, someone might think the baby arrived a little early, but who would dare challenge the king? And then Nathan, the prophet, arrived. Good and faithful Nathan. And we know the story. Nathan tells a tale of two men who lived in the same town. One rich, one poor. The rich man had many cattle and sheep. The poor man had nothing except one baby lamb that he had bought. And that poor man raised it by hand. He grew up with him and his children, sharing his food, his drink, it even slept in his arms. We are told it was like a daughter to him. And then a traveller comes to visit the rich man. And instead of taking one of his own sheep or cattle, he takes the lamb that belongs to the poor man and has it killed, prepared as a meal. David burns with anger when he hears this story. As surely as Yahweh lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan turns to David and says, You are that man. Nobody was supposed to know. Nobody was supposed to get hurt. But God knew, and then Nathan knew. And the words we have in Psalm 51 are the response of David to Nathan's rebuke. These are words that come from the very bottom of David's heart as he finally understands the gravity of what he has done. This is David the shepherd boy, David who conquered Goliath, David the adulterer, David the betrayer. It is only when David is confronted by Nathan that he is also confronted by the reality of his sin. And if David, the one who God called a man after my own heart, needed to see sin as it really is, then we need to face up to the reality of sin, the harsh reality. Now that he's been confronted, David finally comes clean. There's no point trying to hide. He is totally open. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. There's no longer an attempt to justify his actions. He goes straight to the heart of the matter. He needs God's mercy because it's not an error of judgment or a moment of weakness. He needs God's mercy because David recognizes what he has done. He has sinned. Note also who he's speaking to. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me, against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak, and justified when you judge. Against you only? David has had Uriah put to death, and then taken his wife. Surely he's sinned against this man. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Surely she has been sinned against. And those things are true. But the heart of every sinful action that you or I commit is ultimately directed against God, the creator of this universe. When we do wrong against each other, we demonstrate our great skill at breaking the law that God has put in place. Good and evil are determined by him. And it's in his sight that our lives are lived. So he may be justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. Now David is not dismissing the effects of his sin on Bathsheba and Uriah, but he recognizes that sin is ultimately directed against God. Sin is the heart of the matter, and sin is at the heart of who he is. Verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. For each one of us, escaping sin is not a matter of just trying harder to be better. It is not about building up the strength to become better, to become more acceptable to God somehow. Because sinful pride is at the heart of who we are. It is us turning our back on God or shaking our fist at him or acting as if he isn't even there. Each time we decide that our choice, our preference, our desire is preferable to what God has told us, we choose our sinful pride over obedience to God. And yet doing the right things doesn't mean God will be happy either, for he desires truth in the inner parts. Going through the motions, being religious, not swearing, giving money to charity, even, even coming to church every Sunday for the rest of your life means nothing if you don't have truth on the inside. We don't need more actions to repeat day after day, week after week. We need wisdom that can only be taught by God himself. You know, everyone loves a good scandal. There's a kind of enjoyment and glee that people take when a scandal comes to light, unless you are the one caught in it. I think some of the enjoyment that people get out of a scandal is uh, thinking, well, I'm glad it wasn't me. Whether it's uh, the current election cycle or the latest season of The Bachelor, people love a good scandal. But nobody wants to be caught in one. And each one of us is an expert when it comes to covering up who we really are, when it comes to our shortcomings or weaknesses, our little desires that we like to keep hidden from everyone else. We think we can keep those hidden from God as well. 
we justify. Well, I was tired after a long and busy week. I didn't mean to do it. I didn't mean to lose my temper or to cut that person off in traffic. I didn't mean to let those thoughts of envy or malice towards others enter my mind. I didn't mean to spend that money irresponsibly or or to visit those websites I have no business visiting. We're really good at explaining things away. Our inner lawyers are really good. And because each one of us may not have a prophet called Nathan to come up to us and say, you are that man or woman, we get away with it for now. Our inner lawyer says, nobody will know, nobody will get hurt. The thing is, all of these secrets and the pride that's behind them, they succeed in a way, not in hiding the sin from God, but they succeed in desensitizing us to the danger of that sin. They help us forget how dangerous sin really is. I remember the first night we moved into our house. I couldn't sleep. It was raining and I just couldn't fall asleep because our house has a metal roof. All my life I had slept under tiled roofs and this first night in our house, the noise of the rain landing on the roof was keeping me awake. But now when it rains... I don't even notice it. I've become desensitized to it. Over time, I've gotten used to it, and the rain still makes that noise on the roof, but I don't even hear it. And when we hide our sins instead of confessing them, we become desensitized to them. We don't notice them anymore. They don't even register on our radar. But we are told that the wages of sin is death. And these hidden sins could become the death of us. Yes, you will still call yourself a Christian. Yes, you may still faithfully come to church every week. Yes, you will still go through the motions each and every day. You may read your Bible every day. But your hidden sins stay hanging around. And you become desensitized to them. You become desensitized to God and his presence. You know what you're supposed to feel, but you don't feel that passion anymore. And they pose a massive risk because they could become the death of us. If you spend a moment now, what sin have you allowed to take root in your life and become desensitized to? What have you justified and allowed to hang around instead of cutting out ruthlessly as Jesus tells us to? Is it pride, a short fuse and anger, or finding your comfort your identity in the things you buy, in the food you eat. We fool ourselves if we think that sin is not a big deal. When we forget how serious sin is, when we take sin lightly, then we also forget why we even need God. We sin even if nobody else knows. God knows about it. And that sinful pride has tainted our hearts. And if sin lies at the very heart of who we are, then we need a new heart. David has been open and honest with the problem. He's embraced his responsibility and he recognises that the only way he can go on is if God will restore him. Look at verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Now, Hyssop, for those of you who don't know, played a very special part in the life of Israel. In Exodus 12, the Israelites are preparing to leave Egypt. And Moses tells them to use hyssop to apply the blood of the Passover lamb to their door frames. That blood would save them from destruction that night. When all over the nation of Egypt, firstborn children and animals died, any house that had blood on the door frame would be spared. Then later in Leviticus and Numbers, hyssop is used by the priests to purify an unclean house in person. It was used when a person needed to be restored. And David is asking God himself to cleanse him. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. David longs to have that feeling. And we know it, don't we? The feeling of sin, the feeling of falling short, of having succumbed to temptation, the feeling of guilt that gnaws away inside, of needing to be washed. When uh, Christian Hosoi was introduced to skateboarding, he was seven or eight years old. He skated with the founders of the sport, and by 14, he was a professional skateboarder. He developed a rivalry with another young guy at the time called Tony Hawk. He even has two tricks named after him. He was living in Hollywood. He was a VIP. He was the youngest kid at clubs. He had all the girls. He had everything. And he also had a drug problem at the age of 14. And he describes the time. Inside of me, I was dying. See, I was searching for love everywhere, money, fame, girls. Personally, I was like a bucket full of holes. I was searching for it in everything the world had to offer. Every time I filled it up, it would just drain out, and none of it satisfied me. It was a never-ending cycle. I was empty every single time. And in that vulnerable time of life, he was introduced to crystal meth. From 1995 to 2000, he says he took it every single day, all day. He says, in that time, I remember thinking, I'm going to make a huge comeback. I'm going to turn my life around. But at the same time, it was this constant, never-ending cycle of trying to say this and yet being sucked into a vortex of covering up my pain, covering up my shame, covering up the pride that was burning up inside me. A vortex of covering up pain, shame, and pride. David tried to cover up his shame. And only when he was confronted by his sin did he turn to God. And when we let the reality of our sin grip us, when we realize just how badly we need help to make things right again, that should drive us to our knees and back to God. Look at the longing in David's words. Verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. He longs to return to that joy and gladness he used to know so well. I mean, this is David, the shepherd boy who took down Goliath, the man after God's own heart, the man who wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and yet here he feels the separation. He feels the guilt, he feels the shame, and he cries out to God, wash me and make me clean again. And he knows that sin 
is not a once-off thing. It has tainted every part of his life. And so being washed is not just a once-off thing. He needs something more. He needs a transplant. He needs a new heart. Look at verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. See, being washed is not enough for we'll keep on doing the things we don't want to. That never-ending cycle of trying to do the right thing and yet falling short. We all need a heart transplant. And David understands what is at stake. He begs that God will not depart. Look at verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. I think when David penned these words, he had a very clear picture in his mind. See, his predecessor, King Saul, had been a mighty man. God had chosen Saul to be the first king of Israel, and Saul was a successful military commander. But he didn't do as God commanded, and ultimately was rejected. In 1 Samuel 16, it tells us that the Spirit of God departed Saul, and instead he was tormented by an evil spirit. Only the harp playing of a shepherd boy called David could make Saul feel better. But the evil spirit and paranoia got the better of Saul. And more than once, he tried to kill David, chasing him into the countryside and hunting him down. See, David saw firsthand what happens when the Spirit of God leaves. He saw the horrible consequences of sin and pride in the life of Saul. And David did not want to go down that path. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He begs to be restored and to be given a new spirit. Do you feel the weight of your sin? Maybe you felt it for a while and it's heavy and it's sitting on your shoulders, and it's beginning to take your joy. That vortex of going around and around, trying to cover up your shortcomings, trying to make up the shortfall in your own strength. When is the last time you heard joy and gladness in your heart? How long has it been since you felt the joy of salvation welling up in your life? Or do your bones feel like they have been crushed? Do you struggle to come to God, feeling that when you do, all it does is remind you of how far away he feels, how the joy of Psalm 23 feels more like the guilt and shame of Psalm 51? Well, if that's you, then David has more to say to us. Because even in the midst of his darkest hour, David knew one thing that could give him hope. Our only hope is that God will not refuse a broken spirit. He will not refuse a broken spirit. Look at how the tone of the psalm is gradually changing. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Like curtains being opened, David's view suddenly opens up and he begins to see a future. David will teach transgressors God's ways because he was a transgressor. Sinners will turn back to God just like David is turning back to God here. 
But David doesn't take any credit. It is God who saves him from blood guilt. So David will sing. He prays that his lips will be opened before he longed to hear joy and gladness. Now he is the one singing and praising. What is the reason for this change? Verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. If you look closely, it sounds like there's a contradiction here. Because in verse 16, he says, God, you don't delight in sacrifice or burnt offerings. And then verse 19, it says, but then there will be sacrifices and there will be burnt offerings that delight God. So what's David going on here? He's not confused, but David realizes that we shouldn't confuse outward actions with the heart. Look at verse 17 again. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, a sacrifice or a burnt offering on its own does nothing. It's only when that sacrifice represents a broken and contrite heart that it will please God. In a moment of sinful pride, David took another man's wife as his lover. And in God's sovereignty, David was rebuked by Nathan. 2 Samuel tells us that as part of God's judgment, the baby born from the affair would die despite David's prayers. And in Psalm 51, we see the honest, broken, and contrite heart of David as he kneels before God. See, it's only here as the weight of his sin threatens to cripple him, as the thought of God's spirit leaving him, it's only now that David's sinful pride is broken. Only now is he brought to repentance. Only now does he remember God will not refuse a broken spirit. In January 2000, Christian Hasoy was arrested at Honolulu Airport getting off the plane. He was apprehended while traveling with one and a half kilos of illicit drugs from LA to Honolulu. Sitting in jail at the urging of his girlfriend, he picks up a Bible and starts reading. These are his words. I opened it up and I started a Genesis. And it was like, remember, he's a skateboarder. This is like a Star Trek movie. And I said, no, I'm not going to start there. And I opened it up to the end and it said Revelation. And I had never had a revelation yet. I turned to John and asked, well, who's John? I turned to Psalms and I asked, what's Psalms? And what's Proverbs? Those are weird names of books. And then I got to Kings, and when I got to Kings, I said, this will be interesting. I'm going to start here. And it was 1 Kings chapter 2 that changed his life. King David is telling his son Solomon that if he would follow the Lord all of his days, then he would be blessed. Christian says, for me, Immediately, it was like the scales fell off my eyes. I knew why I was where I was. I knew I was created for a purpose, to know God, follow God, live for God, and to love God. After two to three weeks of reading the Bible, Christian gave his life to the Lord. Over the phone with his girlfriend, 
from county jail in San Bernardino, he dedicated his life to God. His uncle, who was a pastor, asked if he was sure he wanted to do this, and he said yes. Christians described the moment as the tears came falling down. All the guilt, all the pain, all the hurt, all the shame fell off my shoulders. I knew I was moving into a whole new realm. It was living for Jesus and I came alive. And I started getting so excited about life. People said, what is wrong with you? I said, I'm free, I'm free. And they said, you are crazy. You must have bumped your head, Christian. Look at those bars. You're in prison. No, I was in prison my whole life, living in sin and death, until coming into a prison cell and accepting Jesus into my life. And in that place, I became a free man. I went to prison and I got freed. He was released from prison in the winter of 2004. And today he still travels as a professional skateboarder and he serves as an associate pastor in Huntington Beach, California. I don't know how your relationship with God is. I don't know what your prayer life is like. But what I can tell you is that there is no special formula to growing in your prayerfulness. There are no four points or six steps to having better prayers. What I can tell you, though, is to look to Psalm 51. King David was called a man after God's own heart, possibly the highest praise for anyone in the Bible. Yet in this passage, we see the devastation caused by a moment of sinful pride when he decided his way was better than God's way. If you feel far from God, if you feel like he isn't there, then take an honest look at your life. Have you become desensitized to the sin that separates you from God? Are you looking for love or fulfillment or restoration or comfort anywhere but in his arms? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God will never turn away a broken and contrite heart. He will never ignore someone with a broken spirit. You might think that your prayers aren't working, that God isn't listening, that somehow your prayers are broken. Our prayers are not broken, but God wants us to come with him, come to him with a broken pride. Only when we offer the prayers of a broken and humble spirit will our worship be truly acceptable. The baby boy that was conceived in the affair did die just as God said it would. But afterwards, Bathsheba would give birth to another son and they named him Solomon. The words that changed Christian Hasoy's life were the last words that David gave to Solomon before he died. They weren't empty words of advice. They were the words of a man who had walked closely with God, who sinned greatly, was broken deeply, and then learnt how to sing God's praises once more. What sin has been lurking in your life? We need to face up to the reality of sin. It's time for us to stop trying to be better. We don't need better behaviour. We need new hearts. And God will not refuse a broken heart.
If you can turn with me now just to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. See, when we recognise the depth of our sin, when we realise we need new hearts, God offers us an amazing opportunity. He says he will take our pain, our hurt, our shame, and he nails them to the cross. Into his son, your hurt and shame, your sin and pain. Your record of debt is done away with, and he makes us alive in Christ. And if that doesn't drive us to prayer, then I don't know what else will. When we face up to the reality of our sin, when we cry out for restoration, God offers us more than a bath. He offers us a heart transplant, the gift of new life in Christ and the joy of salvation. God will not refuse a broken spirit. May he break each one of us that our tongues may sing of his righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that even in the moments when our hearts swell with pride and we decide our way is better than yours, your offer of forgiveness stands and you tell us that you will never refuse a broken and contrite heart. Lord, as we look at this man, King David, someone who knew you so well and yet in a moment sinned greatly and felt the consequences of that sin, we thank you that even in that moment he understood that you will never turn away someone who came in brokenness and repentance and, Lord, that you would offer a new heart, our only hope, Lord. We thank you that this comes to us by the blood of Jesus. We thank you that in his perfect obedience, we can be called your sons and daughters. Lord, let us feel the joy of salvation and let our mouths be filled with songs of your righteousness. Amen.